Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Designers of consumer technologies have an interest in making them useful for everyone. And that means working on usability and avoiding pitfalls or potential harms. But in a digital age where tech companies can quickly scale to global markets, how do you make sure the tech works for everybody? This time, a repeat of an episode that originally aired at the start of this year. It's a look at designing from the margins for inclusive tech. Our digital technologies are designed in a particular context. People designing them can make, even unconsciously, assumptions about how those technologies are going to be used. But consider the case of protesters, activists, refugees, and LGBTQ plus people living under repressive regimes. They rely on consumer communications tools like messaging apps and social media. For LGBTQ plus folks, for instance, they play a really vital role in this connection for folks where, you know, meeting just at a bar is often not a safe option or just not even possible. This is Afsane Rigo. I'm a senior researcher at Article 19. And for the last nearly a decade, I've been looking at different ways within which technology affects, especially um, LGBTQ communities in the Middle East and North Africa. Afsane researches how vital communications technologies can also be used against folks in those communities. In addition to researching the issue, she's working on how these technologies can better serve the needs of these vulnerable communities, and why what she calls design from the margins can make the technology better for all of us. To understand how technology design needs to change, first we need to dig into some of the ways digital breadcrumbs can be used to target and persecute LGBTQ plus people, where something as simple as having a queer dating app can be used against you. We're seeing a trend throughout the years where policing actors and state actors are using the same technologies and sort of weaponizing these hubs of um, congregational connection to identify people. So this double-edged sword comes in here, I guess, from the knowledge that they also have that a lot of folks will meet online. So things like queer dating apps, something like a hornet or a grinder or something that's very directly targeted towards queer communities, depending on the country, becomes like the go-to place for them to find people. Because in these sort of arbitrary eyes where something like your identity is criminalized or seen as a criminal act, solely being or having these apps is seen as a crime in itself. You recently wrote a paper on digital crime scenes about how private data is used to to prosecute or persecute LGBTQ people in Egypt and North Africa. So what did you find? 
Yes, so this research in Tunisia, Lebanon and Egypt was kind of like a case study snapshot of something uh, we've been looking at throughout the years. So I really wanted to dive into and understand beyond how police and quote-unquote informants have been using digital evidence to gain convictions and sentencing for something as intricate and complex and personal as identity. So what I really wanted to understand in this research was what's being used in court, what's being gathered, what's being used, and what actually amounts to a sentence. So what elements of this sort of digital evidence become the most detrimental? And in the report itself, you will see that it's this patchwork, kind of this mosaic of every single element of communication on a people's device. So the device itself becomes the crime scene. So hence the title of the sort of, often it's the mobile device because it's what people are arrested with. If they have their laptops on them, that will be used, of course. And it's also very important to note what we learned in this research as opposed to the previous ones that of course dating apps and queer dating apps become very instrumental for them but in effect when it comes to sentences is everything from chat-based apps like a whatsapp or a telegram to social media to chat logs of text messages to photo galleries or even contact names in the phone so this mosaic of digital evidence becomes used. So it could be perhaps evidence that's, you know, maybe even seemingly innocuous. Are are there any examples that spring to mind? Oh, yes. You have to bear in mind that a lot of these cases are done in a haphazard way and often they're based on preconceived sort of discriminatory view of queer individuals. So, you know, a lot of the interviewees I talked to and to kind of paraphrase one of the Tunisian interviewees is about punishment. And it's about gathering the sentence rather than proving innocence in these cases. Often it's about what article applies or what piece of evidence applies. So in that sense, some of the pieces of evidence we've seen in these cases, just even under the national law that we're talking about, don't fit. A lot of the national laws, whether they're directly or indirectly criminalizing queer folks, require specific acts to be committed. And then in the case file, you'll have something as innocent as an I like you message or a selfie from someone's phone being used as evidence because in reality, what the research showed is that it becomes a crime of queerness rather than any sort of act. So the different sort of crimes they have is debauchery or sexual acts against nature or all of these different vague, broad terms. And this sort of arbitrary collection of whatever is in the phone or device or at their disposal that kind of creates this narrative of queerness is what creates the sentencing something like a picture or even very intimate messages i saw were the most detrimental often and the lawyers had a harder time to dispute so it may become a matter of sort of say who you are rather than what you do right it's it's not the yeah. same sex sexual activity it's it's the queerness per se yeah 
So when they're accessing this information on people's phones or laptops, are the police using sophisticated hacking techniques or are they just basically forcing people to give up their passwords? Often a lot of the times when we have these sort of cases, especially when we're talking about digital crimes, the assumption is that there is a lot of sophistication to it. And I think, you know, if you were to speak to any scholar or historian that's been looking at policing for a long time, traditional policing methods, we're talking about interrogations and profiling, witness interviewing, intimidation of different kinds, is far more useful and resourceful for them than anything high-tech. And in these cases, they just don't need highly sophisticated surveillance methods and so on. And it wasn't seen in any of the cases or interviews. Actually, when I asked some of the lawyers whether sophisticated tech was used in terms of gathering this sort of evidence, some of them laughed at me. (laughs) We're like, no, not here. I mean, I think that there was like the sort of shock of that question was because, hey, these police are not that smart, the ones we're talking about. And two, they just don't need it. And that's the scarier part is that all they have to do is force their way into a phone and whatever is in there they can try and use anyway. That's not to say it couldn't happen. The reason I say that is because there's a really concerning shift in somewhere like Egypt where digital evidence has become so useful in these cases that they have started adding in cybercrime and telecommunication law charges to the same cases and have been moving these cases to the economic courts, which is a really new and very concerning trend. And by this shift to the economic courts, they're using laws that are far more vague and broad, like protection of family values and misuse of social media. Very broad. They haven't been much challenged in the high courts. So their likelihood of getting higher charges and higher sentences have increased. And at the time when during the interviews, some of the Egyptian lawyers who had become kind of real masters of challenging these cases had said it's really hard to challenge these cases now. Yeah. So when it comes to people who are potentially vulnerable, like LGBTQ plus people, are there features of, let's call it Silicon Valley consumer design that can be more risky for them, perhaps things that like your average person listening to this might not even be aware of? Yeah. So a lot of the time, a lot of our conversations with tech companies and others revolve around this concept that a lot of this technology gets created in context and for um, demographics that are then not the main focus and they're advertised to very highly vulnerable non-US, non-EU contexts. And these sort of features, they they could be really an issue of features that are harmful or a lack of certain features or functionality on certain tools that become harmful. So for example, features that would be harmful in any context, but especially in these contexts, in like high-risk contexts, in repressive regimes or contexts where highly marginalized people are criminalized, things like, you know, using your telephone number to register for an application becomes really harmful. We've seen evidence of this from Iran to a number of different countries where the SIM card number is used to connect to the legal name of an individual. 
and then to prove that connection between whatever sort of evidence is gathered and the individual's full name. So something like that, you know, it unfortunately there are such easy fixes. Um, I'm sure there's complexities in implementation, but fixes of like having usernames instead of phone numbers for registration or having multiple methods of registration optionality. On the other hand, there's need to understand these highly impacted communities and individuals of what they would need in terms of harm reduction for them to safely continue to use the apps like everyone else. And, you know, having the same sort of mold and model of what's uh, useful, let's say, in um, San Francisco can't be the same thing that becomes useful and safe to use in a different context, especially with different laws and policies that impact individuals. From the Spark Archives, 2016. My name is Mark Latinero. I work on data and human rights. You know, as opposed to the public infrastructures that facilitate movement, like roadways or sort of railways and, and buses, etc., these technologies are privatized. And all activity happening on these digital platforms is sort of represented as data, data about ourselves. And so the crucial difference is that refugees are emitting data about themselves and their movement as they pass through from destination to destination in a way which is unprecedented than other great migrations of the past. And so so each sort of communication, each wire transfer, each text, each um, phone call, any Wi-Fi, there's a record of that. There's a digital crumb, there's a digital trace. Right. And together, the opportunity is that that can be collected and analyzed, and we could learn a lot more about what refugees are doing and how they're moving through and potentially even provide services for them and services for those who are in need. And I'd say the complications are that this very same technologies that are being used by refugees are also being used by bad actors, um, nefarious groups. And so we have human smugglers using the very same technologies to exploit um, refugees. And these are really amongst the world's uh, most vulnerable. listening to Spark on CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about unintended design flaws that can pose risks for some tech users and how technologists can better meet the needs of all users. Right now, my guest is Afsane Rigo, senior researcher at Article 19. Afsane's work is not just about critiquing the design of technology, but actually trying to fix it, like with the queer dating app Grindr. We had a coalition of folks working together and we tested this sort of pilot version of all of this with Grindr back then because, especially important because Grindr was very much weaponized in places like Egypt at the time, Lebanon, 
For example, army and police checkpoints where individuals are being profiled for different reasons. A lot of the cases we saw were Syrian refugees, especially queer Syrian refugees who were being stopped. And the phone searches at these checkpoints created an immediate risk because the research suggested that a lot of people who had Grindr on their phone, the logo itself was creating a risk for them. So people were asking, how can we hide this app in plain sight? We, we want to continue to have these apps. We need them for communication. We need them for connection. We need them just for, you know, fun, whatever. But it's creating a risk. So in that coalition, the work and the research, the methodology was, okay, we need to hide it in plain sight. And along with a group called The Guardian Project, who has a lot of code bases for these types of security features, we pushed this recommendation of hiding the app to make it look like a different logo. And this was difficult at the time because you're asking a company to hide their moneymaker. Of course, a lot of very dedicated folks inside the company push for this too internally and Eventually, it was pushed out, this feature, it's called Discrete App Icons, where you can make the app look like a calendar or a calculator or a to-do list, you know, things that never <laughs> create any sort of suspicion. <laughs> right. like you just have a lot to Boring do. Things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they originally pushed this out, you know, in the quote-unquote high-risk countries, but to the power of this situation of if you're creating for these contexts, you're creating something better for everyone. It was such a popular feature that was a paid for feature in different contexts. But then they realized this is such a popular feature. It became free globally, um, I think at the end of 2021. And still our research shows is one of the most highly used security features. So yeah, to round up, a lot of the research um, has the purpose of like creating mitigation and harm reduction rather than just identifying what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is an example of this notion of design from the margins. So what's the idea here, design from the margins? So design from the margins being this design methodology I've been working on and in effect this kind of the methodology that has encompassed all of this to happen is this context where in which it's saying we need to start designing our tech whether it's from features, changes, or a whole new technologies or platforms with a grounding point of those who are most impacted. I call them decentered in here because I don't like some of the typology that comes for these sort of cases. They often call them edge cases or outliers. And they're not edge cases that need to be taken into consideration as an afterthought after something is completed. But actually, if we're looking at these decentered cases who are so highly marginalized folks who are also highly criminalized under legal, social and political structures, who become kind of a really fundamental point for us to understand the main safety, security, and privacy loopholes and in any technology. So if we're starting from that point, and this is the design from the margins concept, and building out from there, we're kind of encompassing everybody in that. Because theory being, if they are being designed for and if they are safe, we're all safe. 
And it is this sort of ethos that has made a lot of these changes possible. And without sort of hesitation in my mind, and, you know, we have the sort of examples and experience of it, so it leads to so much innovation without for once bulldozing over folks who are most impacted or, you know, using very empty inclusion frameworks that often just water down those needs. Yeah, because often when traditionally in design, when you talk about edge cases, it's almost implying like, oh, well, those are just edge cases, meaning we don't really need to focus on them. But you're sort of saying that if you focus on the decentered user, then it actually lifts all boats and in a sense, it's better for everybody. Exactly. I think yeah. a lot of the theory is that these are not experiences our main user bases will have. However, when there is like the ethical and international business and human rights framework. Businesses and companies need to be mitigating these harms, but also just it creates better technology. If you're creating technology that already has loopholes in it that can be weaponized in different contexts, you already have a vulnerable tech. So if you're creating from your most quote-unquote extreme point, the highly descended individuals, you're covering all ends and you can see this through cryptography to product design. Uh, it's something that really holds and something that is in the report that I hope to build out is that this isn't a revolutionary concept in a sense. It's been done in so many different industries from structural engineering, uh, where they look at the most extreme weather conditions and so on to build their infrastructure to other sort of fields. It's just the question of why aren't we doing it in tech? So beyond considerations of design, when you look at situations of political activism, like, for example, the current demonstrations in Iran, what responsibility do you think technology companies have to citizen access to technology? We utilize these sort of communication technologies in such a way that becomes so fundamental to our existence and resistance and access to them becomes really important. Like it's a two pronged situation. There are situations where, for example, certain technologies might be censored or sort of blocked off in a different context and a platform should in my opinion, have a lot of resources in place to provide methods for folks on the ground to still access the platform. For example, if we're talking about censorship of um, Facebook and Instagram or WhatsApp or different communication tools in somewhere like Iran or China. And then on the other hand, there's this notion that I get often in my research that if there are these apps, for example, queer dating apps that are creating a access point for police for criminalization, shouldn't they just stop functionality in those contexts? It's really not the right framing. It's one is like giving the easy way out to a lot of companies. Be like, well, just cut access and, and cut your losses in that context. Yeah. There shouldn't be a question of cutting things off, but rather a question of making things easy and safer to use. Mm. And this sort of access to these tools becomes really important too. If something like 
WhatsApp that, you know, they have so many of their own issues that they need to deal with in terms of data privacy and so on. But in comparison to the government-owned platforms that the Iranian government, for example, is encouraging the use of, they're a lot safer for folks to use and folks kind of trust them more. So without access to them, people, again, because people are going to communicate anyway. It's just finding the next platform that is accessible yeah. and people are on. And in that sort of scenario, you're providing them with very little avenues and pushing folks into a corner of using perhaps often tools that are made for surveillance and targeting. So mm. short answer, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Afsane, thanks so much for your insights on all this. Thank you so much for having me. Afsane Rigo is a senior researcher at Article 19. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Young, and this time on Spark, we're looking at how to design technologies that work for all of us and why that may mean rethinking the ways we approach tech design from the ground up. For the first part of the show, we were looking at the experience of LGBTQ plus tech users in repressive regimes and why designing for their safety can improve the experience for all users. That's a process our guest called Design from the Margins. For the rest of the show, we're going to look at assistive technology for users with disabilities, why design needs to include those communities from the get-go, and how doing so can improve tech for us all. Assistive technologies have come a long way over the last few years, especially with the rise of smartphones. People with disabilities now have options and tools that didn't even exist until a few short years ago. And that can be a little overwhelming. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear about the current state of assistive tech for blind, low vision and print disabled people. But before we get there, I want to dig back into the Spark archives and play you something from 13 years ago. My name is Austin Serafin and I am an accessibility consultant. I became blind at birth and I was born in 1977 and I got into computers at a very young age, I got the Apple IIe, which was the first computer that the blind could use. I spoke to Austin in 2010 about a screen reader called VoiceOver, which was on his new iPhone. Just gave me as a blind person a whole new way of seeing the world. At the time, screen readers existed for Android and other devices, but they weren't integrated into the operating system like on the iPhone. So I sat with Austin to get a sense of how it all worked. 
General. I'll slow down my speech a little for everyone's benefit. <laughs> Thanks. Right there. And there it is, right there. There's the built-in screen reader. Right. And so how do you know where to touch on the touchscreen? What part okay. of the touchscreen? Anywhere you touch on the screen. Why don't we load up a web page? Okay. Tap, tap on that. And here's your Spark homepage right here. <laughs> so... Anywhere you touch on the screen, you can hear what's on the screen in that location. Okay. And that's something unique for the blind because the blind are usually just used to just hearing a just a stream of text. So to actually be able to touch on the screen and hear what items are at what positions is a totally novel thing and to get these spatial relationships. And as to how you know where things are on the screen, you develop muscle memory. Mm. It's a very interesting thing. You can actually begin learning the positions of different things. Mm -hmm. Like I know that my dock is at the bottom of the screen. That's how I could hit Safari right away because I right. knew that position from my muscle memory. So Austin, can you tell me a bit about the color identifier app? It's one of these great examples of something that wasn't made for blind people at all that the blind can find incredibly useful. Vision, color ID. One of the things that I really uh, loved when I was reading some of your blog posts about it, maybe because I'm a gardener, was your experience of uh, with your pumpkin plants. Can you? Yes, that was really fun. I love yeah. growing pumpkins. I'm sad to say they didn't do very well this year. Oh, that's too bad. It was. It's really neat because I'd always love how they feel, and even the way the pumpkin plants feel, they're just cool. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they'll just take over your yard if you let them. <laughs> I know. So I always enjoy just hanging out. And, and again, I would know things in general, like a pumpkin's orange or the plants or whatever. But to actually, again, be able to go out there. And the fact that I could find the pumpkin patch by getting feedback, you know, by listening to the colors and listening for the colors to change, listening from the, you know, the brown of the brick around it to change to the dirt, to the colors of the pumpkin plants. It was just something completely novel. I'd never experienced it to be able to move it around and hear the different colors and the ranges of colors, even within a single leaf. Mm. It's something that I had heard about, but I never had a way of actually experiencing was my conversation with accessibility consultant Austin Serafin in 2010. A lot's changed in the time since that interview. Computer-assisted vision has become more sophisticated. Machine learning transcription and other AI applications have contributed to richer audio descriptions, which all sounds incredibly promising. But for people with visual disabilities, in practice, they can leave a lot to be desired. And one of the major issues is access. I run a bustling one-on-one -on -one peer coaching service for folks that want to learn to use technology more easily. This is Chansey Fleet. I identify as capital B blind, and I am a library-based technology educator for blind, low vision, and print disabled people of all ages in New York City. So intersectionality is a big thing. The access that I have as someone who is employed, has access to a reasonable budget, has had tons of technology education over the years, 
and has deep hooks into this community of disability wisdom. Having new technology around me, being able to choose wisely, being able to figure things out and not experience that as intimidating or impossible. Like anyone, blind people exist on a spectrum of access and privilege. And so I think one of the most salient things to consider in accessibility for blind folks and folks with print reading disabilities is what else is going on. So for example, although I benefit from the latest and greatest in-screen reading technology that's built into my iPhone, a lot of the patrons that I serve and support that are using Lifeline government-subsidized phones, those phones are running three or four Android versions back. And so the assistive technology that they're using in many cases is a little less stable, a little more sluggish and more suboptimal. So half the battle is learning to use the assistive technology and, and another half of the battle is accessing the technology that would actually help you the best. I know that there are quite a few AI-based website accessibility tools on the market, and, and the promise, as I understand, is that they'll automatically make websites accessible and compliant with the relevant laws and standards. What do you make of this technology? Overlay technologies for accessibility are overhyped and oversold. Credible companies for many years have been in the business of introducing and promoting tools that do some automated accessibility checking that highlight links that are inadvertently classed as buttons or images that don't have alt text, that don't have description, or pages that are missing semantic structure, no headings where there should be headings structuring your journey. The difference is that overlay technologies purport to take the human out of the loop and at least in large measure create compliance with just one line of code. And that's not realistic at this juncture. It takes a computer to notice that an image is missing alt text. It takes a human to know that an image of a car stopped in a road is not an adequate description for the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. AI misses out on valence, cultural context, tone, and complexity. To give you a less dramatic example, I love origami and I love learning origami diagrams, but I need a human in the loop to convert printed origami diagrams to rich descriptions that I could use to words or to tactile diagrams. An AI will say this image may contain a graph or a chart, and that is not enough. It's true that AI has the capacity to become a tremendous companion and a way for us to triage our code and find things that we may have missed. But in the, a human in the loop knows things that AI does not, and a human in the loop also knows the difference between what is quote-unquote accessible, what meets the literal criteria of the web content accessibility guidelines, versus what's actually pleasant and useful to real-world users. And so assuming you have this combination of an AI-driven system along with a human who's giving you know, actual content-related and context-related information, does that work well, having that, that two-pronged approach coming in after the fact? A lot of manual accessibility checkers use that two-pronged approach, and I see a role for AI in those systems now and in the future. 
my concern is that the human is the centered authority in that process. I know that it's possible to build theoretical human in the loop systems where humans only have a small amount of time to tackle each flagged issue or where humans might have the ability to weigh in, but wouldn't, for example, have the authority to stop inaccessible code from shipping once they find it. Making sure that humans are well-trained, well-trusted, and well-resourced will make sure that humans are centered in the design process so that the resulting design centers humans and not AI-generated priorities. I know there are computer vision-based tools that are supposed to provide access to visual information about digital imagery online, but also about the user's physical surroundings via the smartphone camera. Basically, you can point your phone's camera around you and it'll describe what's in the camera's view. I know there was a, an Apple ad back in November showcasing this. What do you make of that technology? Computer vision really grabs the sighted imagination because it's giving us something that we haven't already got. And... To a limited extent, computer vision really is doing phenomenal things. Ever since the early 2000s, I've been using OCR, optical character recognition technology, and teaching others to use it to read printed material that I find out in the world in my mail, in a book, and get that read out loud or get that moved to a Braille display. And one of the most phenomenal things about mobile computer vision is one of the most prosaic. Technology for, for taking a picture of text and giving it back to you in a well-formatted, easy-to-digest form has gotten really good. It's no longer hard for me to recognize packages that come in the mail or a menu at a restaurant or instructions when I get to an Airbnb, for example. And it's simple, but it's one of the things that we most commonly need. Similarly, currency recognition has gotten very, very good. Short text recognition, where we look for text in the environment and pick out, for example, a sign or a label in the fridge is getting really good. The more, quote unquote, interesting applications of computer vision are developing in interesting ways, but I don't see people reaching for them like a Swiss army knife in quite the same way. So for example, I can take a picture with an app called Seeing AI from Microsoft or an app called Lookout from Google, and I can get an overview of what is in my mobile camera. It might tell me that I'm sitting at a table with a computer and a keyboard. At this point, that's not a granularity or richness of information that's really going to deliver me much that I value at this moment. But as machine learning models continue to develop, and as we consider the potential that they might learn from alt text that has already been written, I do see them heading in a trajectory that's more rich and more meaningful down the road. But what's really important to understand again is that for this moment, the best, richest, most evocative alt text is written by image creators or the stewards of images with intentionality, with evocative but precise language, and with the purpose of the image and context in mind. And that's not something that an AI can really handle so far. You are listening to Spark. This is a good time, I think, to bring up a point that when any new form comes into the uh, foreground of things, we naturally look at it through the old uh, yes. stereos. Yes, we can't help that. This is normal, and we're, we're, we're just trying to fit. 
the old things into the new form, instead of asking, what is the new form going to do to all the assumptions we had before? This is Spark from CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the ways that technology design and programming can exclude communities of users, sometimes even those the technology is specifically designed to help. Right now, my guest is Chancey Fleet, a technology educator for blind, low vision and print disabled people. We've been talking about the challenges of current assistive technologies, but also what Chancey predicts for the future of computer vision for describing images and videos. I predict that computer vision will allow us to explore with more granularity. I'm already seeing in the Seeing AI app a mode called Explore Photo that lets us go beyond the main description to touch various parts of the screen and find where individual objects are located. And so I think that in the short term, we can expect more granularity and more spatialization of that information. I think we can continue to expect better performance for things like handwriting and for images that may be pretty straightforward, things like screenshots, things like icons. I think we'll still need a human in the loop for a good long time when it comes to images that are instructional in nature. Think about the flattening the curve graphic as another one, or things that contain cultural context like memes um, or emotional valence. What I do feel excited about in the pretty short term is how computer vision is working together with LiDAR on mobile phones to tell me where something simple is that I know good and well computer vision can identify, but tell me exactly where it is. I don't need to know most things when I walk into a busy conference, but if I'm walking in at 9.10 for a 9.15 conference, there's two things that I desperately want to know. I want to know where there's an empty chair and I want to know where the coffee is. And I want to be able to find those within an inch. So if I can use LIDAR to not only detect them, but be told through a compass orientation which way to start heading, and when I'm there, then I will be caffeinated and seated without having to ask for help. And that kind of thing, zeroing in on simple objects and finding them efficiently and independently, really does hold promise. So how well does this technology work, and is it something that you could use today? So LiDAR technology and object recognition are working together in a couple of apps for iPhone right now and in controlled circumstances with a limited set of objects in mind, they are beginning to work. Like any emerging technology, they're going to benefit from a lot of user feedback and iteration and use in the real world before they become as mature as, say, document recognition or currency recognition is today. You, you sort of touched on this earlier, but when you're talking about machine learning driven technologies, as we know, a lot of machine learning is driven by having these large corpuses of data in order to train the machine learning. Is that something that needs to progress is just actually having the corpus of alt text, for example, through which to train the machine learning? I think that it is important to build a corpus, and it's also really important to keep ethics and user choice and autonomy and consent front and center. I can tell you as a blind user that when a new technology comes out and promises the ability to do something today that I couldn't do yesterday without a lot of assistance or intervention or planning ahead, that's really a head rush. And it makes me want to agree to just everything. 
And one of the more challenging parts of my job and my activism is talking with people that might be very excited to go ahead and read their mail right then for the first time. They might be very excited to upload family photos and see what objects they can find in the photos and what people's facial expressions are. And I have to jump in and say, but wait, you've got to know how your data might be used. It might be used for these commercial purposes. Here's how long the terms of service says it might be kept for. And let's be real. No one's reading that terms of service from beginning to end. The most I can do is have a brief conversation. And so the conversations that we all have about data privacy and consent, I think we need to have in the blind community, but there's a, there is such a sense of urgency when it comes to new technology and new, very tempting forms of independence that it's really easy to be so eager that you slide right past that step. And so important part of what I do is speak to library patrons about, for example, local on-phone apps that can read things out loud. Because just because an app that is cloud-based happens to have a document recognition, recognition tool in it doesn't mean that that's the tool that you want to use when it comes to your sensitive documents. What I would really love to see in the medium to long term as miniaturization continues and processing power on our local devices continues to increase is that once we can host enough recognition power on a user's device, that we do as much local processing as we can and don't automatically create a data funnel every time for every application just because we can. to Spark. This is Spark. Spark from CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and right now my guest on Spark is Chancy Fleet, a technology educator for blind, low vision, and print disabled people. We're talking about the problems that arise when assistive technologies for people with disabilities are built without involving the people those tools are actually for, and how including these communities can improve tech for all of us. Chancy refers to the technical friction that besets accessibility tech as ghost-written code. So I coined ghost-written code to talk about the situation when someone is hired, they are there to be my voice in the room. They're there to be the voice of a blind or disabled or assistive technology using person. But they don't have the lived experience. They've done some studying. They've done some research. They are the person in the room. They are the person designing or encoding the experience. And they're making a decision for me that often is not in my interest. I will present you with two examples. Last year, Google came out with an exciting new feature within Google Translate, which is called Transcribe. And Transcribe lets you set your phone down 
and listen to something long form like a podcast or a show and get real-time translation. And I was so excited to check it out. So I got my phone and I got my Braille display, which is Bluetooth connected to my phone because I'm a Braille reader. And I got ready to do some transcription. And I hit the transcribe button and Google Translate said to me, if you're a voiceover user, you cannot continue unless you plug in headphones. Well, I didn't need headphones because I'm using a Braille display. Nobody had thought about me Nobody had thought about deafblind folks who would have no reason to carry fo- uh, headphones that might, might just be using Braille displays. And this paternalistic imposition was made that not only shouldn't you, but you cannot continue if Google notices that voiceover is on unless you comply and plug in these headphones. Hmm. I think my favorite example, and, and by favorite, I mean most convoluted, and, and, and dramatic and just sensational it has to do with destination elevators. So a destination elevator is a quote unquote smart elevator that's going to quickly take you to your floor and it's going to be more efficient, arguably, than a traditional elevator because everything's handled algorithmically. I had the pleasure of going to a gathering of 3,000 blind people this July in New Orleans and destination elevators were in the venue Things started out pretty well. If you're a blind person, you walk up to the destination elevator kiosk, you push a special accessibility button, and then it says, what floor are you? And you punch your floor in, and it announces what floor you're going to and what car that's coming to. And for the first day or so pre-conference, when there were maybe several hundred blind people and a bunch of sighted people from other conferences riding the destination elevators, everything seemed pretty okay. But then the system started to progressively fail. We noticed it was taking longer and longer to pick up rides. And at the culmination of the conference, there were folks that were stranded waiting over 30 minutes for an elevator. Some that were climbing over 10 floors of stairs to get where they were going because they no longer trusted the elevators and folks that were moving out of the hotels. How did this happen? Features were developed for the destination elevator for the good of the blind person without consultation with the blind community. Specifically, I found out that two features were built in, something called adjacency, where if you hit the special blind button, only a car near you would come for you and you wouldn't have to go across the whole elevator lobby. Sounds great, but now we've cut your available cars in half. Another feature was a slowdown feature. If you press the special accessibility button, When the elevator stopped at your floor, it would stay open longer for you, give you some extra time to get over there and get settled, get inside. Again, sounds like a favor. And it works if you have five or 10 blind people in the building, but if you have 3,000, it results in a crashing system failure. And that's the kind of thing that goes down when the people being represented in the code aren't represented in the room. And in terms of representing people in the room, like, is it sufficient to do say, usability testing with blind and low vision users? Or does accessibility need to be more nuanced, like about the types of interactions that people have with these technologies or or whether they use screen readers or Braille or, or that kind of thing? I think rigorous user testing is the absolute lowest bar that we need to set. And what we really need are more folks with disabilities and assistive technology users represented in development design, QA, testing, and leadership. Companies can do that by strengthening their pipelines, creating internship pathways, fellowship pathways, 
hiring and recruiting in communities of disability and making sure that when they procure technology, the behind the scenes technology that we all rely on for development and design itself is accessible. I think that even when user studies are run, those are run usually within controlled circumstances. And that if, especially if we want to benefit from the deep knowledge people with disabilities have about innovation, about the unexpected directions technology takes us in, we really need our folks positioned at every level within the development design industry. I mean, we've been having conversations about accessibility for ages. Just to put it bluntly, why are we still talking about this? Like, why doesn't it happen what you're talking about, about bringing more designers in, you know, from the beginning of the process? I think there are quite a few reasons. One of them is that, frankly, a lot of us become discouraged before we make it to those pipelines. I am thrilled to be a technology educator in a library today, and I'm thrilled to finally be someone that understands code, that understands data representations. I taught myself all of these things far, far after my my formal education was over, and I taught them to myself and then to library patrons within the safe space of this job. Often it feels like having a disability and using assistive technology is a second job on top of your job or your studies. When I was in undergrad and grad school, I might want to use a statistics package and then find out that the statistics package didn't read anything intelligible to my screen reader. I might be interested in 3D design and find myself tripped up because all of the 3D design was happening in a graphical user interface on screen, and I wasn't aware of the alternatives for me. So I think to move the needle and really get people better represented in development and design and tech careers, it's important to create strong pathways for mentorship and and for emerging workers and leaders to get to know what those of us who are self-taught or are in the know have discovered. Um, and I think it's getting easier to do that. I've heard that free code camp, for example, has become more accessible. Apple Swift Playgrounds is accessible, which is phenomenal. The new MicroPython editor from BBC is accessible. And more and more of these things are opening up. But if you encounter a closed pipeline, that motivates you to just go pick another career. And so the pipeline is from from the educational tools to recruitment is one area of focus that I think will really create the opportunities that our next generation needs. Thank you so much for your insights on this. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Chancy Fleet is an Access Technology Program Coordinator in New York. You've been listening to an episode of Spark that first aired in January 2023. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samuel Johannes, Matt Muse, and me, Nora Young. And by Afsane Rigo and Chansey Fleet. And from the Spark archives, Mark Latonero and Austin Serafin. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.